Well, hey, welcome to Sojourn. Uh, glad that you're here this morning. My name is Justin. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, man, it's just good to worship with you and sing this morning. Thankful for Daniel and the liturgy we had this morning just to be reminded of who it is that we praise, who it is that we gather together to worship. So this is your first time here. Uh, our church is very much focused on the reality of who Jesus is and who God is and how that impacts our life. And so we hope that if you're either checking out who God is or checking out church or you're just looking for a community to be a part of, that you uh, could find yourself being here and being a part of this church. We'd love to have you and love to meet you after the service as well. Uh, for those of you that gather regularly that are part of this family already, man, it's just good to be with you as well uh, and see your faces and worship together this morning. Uh, we're going to be in the book of Jonah as we have been over the last few weeks. So if you need a copy of the Bible this morning to read along with us, just raise your hand. We'll have a few people bring that around to you. I want you to be able to actually read along with us out of God's Word. Uh, and if you don't actually own a copy of the Bible, please feel free to take that with you. That's our gift to you. We want you to be able to read God's Word uh, throughout the week. But as we get started, let's just go to the Lord in prayer and ask Him to bless our time in Jonah this morning. So would you pray with me? Father, we give you thanks uh, that we get to gather together. We give you thanks for the gift that it is to be together this morning as your church. That we exist as the church throughout the week, but we're scattered. Scattered in our communities, in our homes, in our workplaces. Uh, but every week we get the, the joy of coming together as a body of Christ. Coming together to be with one another. Coming together to lift our voices to you. Coming together to sing over one another coming together to receive your word as it's read and preached. And so I pray now that as we open up your word to the book of Jonah, that we would reflect on and be impacted by the reality that this is a gift to us. And by your grace and the power of your spirit, we pray this morning that you would use the gift of your word preached this morning to impact our lives and our hearts, that we would walk out of here transformed just by being here this morning, Lord. We really do believe that the preaching of your word is not for the sake of transferring information to grow our heads in knowledge, but to impact our hearts and transform us, even as we sit in the seats that we're in this morning. And so we ask that you do that work. That's not something I can accomplish on my own. It's not something I can do at all. It's only by the power of your Holy Spirit. And so we invite you, Holy Spirit, to do that work this morning that you would speak through me, these words that are prepared speak through me, but for your purpose and for your glory and for our good. And so we give this time to you. We pray you'd be honored by it and that you would change us again because we've been here today. And so we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. You know, there are certain things in life that when you do them have a pretty definite outcome to them. If you touch a hot stove, you're going to get burned. Uh, if you mix ammonia and bleach with one another, then it's going to produce a toxic gas. If you consistently exercise and work out and eat healthy, then you're going to be in shape and be healthy. And if you're a Washington sports fan, you are never going to see your team win a championship. I know, it's just real life though, you know what I'm saying? But there are other things in life that, uh, that aren't so definite. We don't always know the outcome of what's going to happen in other situations. If you interview for a job, you may or may not get that job. If you ask that girl out, she may or may not say yes to you. And if you invest in certain stocks, you may or may not make money. And if you campaign hard for an election, you may or may not win. 
Well, as we come to our text today in the book of Jonah, we see that what is about to happen from Jonah's perspective is anything but definite in the outcome. Jonah's not sure of what's going to take place. He, it's really a potential outcome, and he has, and we'll see this in chapter 4, he has a, an idea, a, a thought of what is going to happen, but he can't know for sure what's going to take place. Jonah will go into Nineveh, and he will preach a message to the, these Ninevites, these people of Nineveh in this city, and there's really only two possible outcomes that could take place. One, they will receive Jonah and his message, or they will reject Jonah and his message. And so Jonah has to go in faith, believing and trusting that God is in control in this situation. Because knowing who these people are, it might be a a pretty scary endeavor for him. This is not a people who are known for being nice. They're not known for being kind, especially to people who are strange and different to them with the message that Jonah is going to bring. They're a vicious people. They're a destructive people. They want to oppress and destroy the people of Israel who Jonah is part of and from. And so going into the city all by himself could be a scary thing for him to do. But, having just had the experience that he had with God, he decides this time to listen and obey the living God who came after him. So the story of Jonah continues to be an interesting story, an interesting story of this disenchanted follower. He's run away from God. He's hidden himself from God, and now he has to respond to him. And so in our text today, we'll see that our disenchanted follower, our wandering prophet, gets a second chance to give a second chance. And so my hope today is that God will allow all of us, no matter where we find ourselves in our spiritual journey, whether we're seeking to follow Jesus, or as I said at the beginning, maybe you're here this morning and you're just checking out who Jesus is, or you've been invited by a friend to be here this morning, but you don't quite know what it means or looks like to be a part of God's family to be a part of the church. No matter where you find yourselves this morning, I hope, I pray that we will see God's patience in our lives towards us. That we will see his calling on our lives. That we will see the outcome that all of us should long to see in our own lives, in our church family, out in this community of Fairfax and Northern Virginia and all across this country and all across this world. And so may God bless the preaching of his word this morning. If you have your Bible, you can go ahead and open up to the book of Jonah. We're going to be primarily in chapter 3, but this morning I want to just start where we left off last week. So we're going to start by reading from chapter 2, verse 10, through the entirety of chapter 3. This is Jonah's story and God's word to you this morning. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. 
Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Over these last few weeks, we've seen the drama of Jonah unfold, and Again, for some of us, this story is probably familiar, and for some of us, it's new. But whether it's familiar to you or new to you, I hope that as we've walked through this series so far, that God's been teaching you something, that we've all collectively been learning something. My hope is as we look into Jonah's story, we do see it as a mirror that we're able to see ourselves in Jonah, that we struggle with some of the same things that Jonah struggles with. But as we said, it's not just a mirror, it's also a window into the heart of our God. See, this story isn't primarily just about Jonah, it's about God as well in his heart. And I think we'll see that this morning. See, Jonah, this disenchanted follower, has lost a sense of awe. He's lost a sense of wonder at who God is, at God's amazing power and beauty and grace. This God that Jonah knows, this God that Jonah serves, but who's knowing and serving has become more of a, a job, more of a burden for Jonah rather than a relationship and a deep joy. Jonah has run from the presence of the Lord. He's encountered a literal storm as God threw this storm onto Jonah as he relentlessly pursued his prophet, as he relentlessly pursued the heart of this man. And all along the way, Jonah continued to remain obstinate, even being thrown overboard into this raging sea instead of repenting. But last week we saw that in the depths of the sea and the belly of this great fish, Jonah recognized who God was. And he recognized who he is. And he repented, turning away from his sin and rebellion and turning to God in faith. And he rested in the reality that he is not in control, but he knows the God who he is, or better yet, that God knows him. And so this morning we're going to break our text down into three points Last week, they all started with R, so I said, hey, why not all start with R again? We're a Baptist church. It's what we do. Here are the three points this morning. Recommissioned, redemption, and revival. Recommissioned, redemption, and revival. So let's jump into our first point, recommissioned. We see this in verses 1 through 3. Jonah has spent three days and nights in the belly of this great fish or sea creature of some kind, and in God's providence, he survived that. God allowed him to endure that and survive that. And in chapter 2, verse 10, when God speaks to his appointed fish, this fish literally vomits Jonah out of its mouth onto dry land. You can picture this. Jonah grasping for breath, grasping at gravel and sand. He pulls himself up as the waves break on and around him, a mouth full of seawater soaked to the bone. He stands up and he looks around, the sun beating down on his face and thinks, this is real life, I'm still alive. I'm actually alive, back on land. And so pulling seaweed off of his body, he slowly begins to walk down the coast, muscles aching, heart beating fast with a stench of fish and fish vomit lingering on him as he goes. And so then we get to verse 1. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. 
See, God had already spoken very clearly to Jonah one time before, and he had very clearly called Jonah to go do something, to go, to go to this people of Nineveh, but Jonah ran. But here God is, and he comes to Jonah a second time, and in his grace, he comes to him a second time. In his grace. See, God didn't need Jonah. God could have said, you know what, I'm going to move on from Jonah. I'm not going to give you a second chance. He could have given up on Jonah, moved on from him, and called someone else to go and do what he wanted Jonah to do originally. But he has not given up on his disenchanted follower. He has not given up on his wandering prophet. And we can't forget that God has not forgotten about the people of Nineveh. See, in the midst of all this story, something we have to make sure we understand is that God has a heart for the nations. God longs for people from every tribe, every language, every nation to know about him and to know him. God desires to spread his glory globally. And so we can't forget in all this that God, the original thing that God called Jonah to do is to go tell people about him. And Jonah decided he didn't want to go do that. So Jonah, I mean, God hasn't forgotten about Jonah, and he hasn't forgotten about the people of Nineveh as well. See, that's how this story started. Chapter 3, verse 2 sounds a whole lot like chapter 1, verse 2. Arise and go to Nineveh. Get up, Jonah, and start moving towards these people. So Jonah is recommissioned in the service of the Lord to be a messenger for the Lord. Now, there's something important that I want all of us to make sure we get in this moment as we're looking at Jonah. Remember, this is a mirror for us. We can look at our own lives in light of this and look at the heart of God in this. Something that I don't want us to miss, and we'll come back to this a bit at the end, but it's this. If you have failed in life, even if you've disqualified yourself because of sin in your life, God can still use you for the advancement of his global glory. God can still use you. And it starts with doing what we talked about last week, recognizing, repenting, and resting. And so if you didn't get to listen to the sermon last week, I'd encourage you to go online on our website and listen to that. But here what we see is that God recommissions Jonah and he calls him to go to Nineveh to preach and proclaim. But what is it that he calls him to go preach and proclaim? He says the message that I tell you. The message that I tell you. So that means that what Jonah says is not from himself. He doesn't come up with this message on his own. This is God's word. It comes from him. Something we have to recognize is that the preacher and proclaimer, whether a pastor or a missionary like you. See, all of us are missionaries, not just if you're going to get on a plane and go overseas, but as you walk out of these doors today, you go out of these doors as a missionary. So no matter who you are, what your vocation is, all of us are called to be proclaimers. But the reality is that we're always under the authority of God who calls us and sends us. We don't speak on our own authority. We don't have any. We don't speak out of some sufficiency that we have on our own. We are insufficient apart from God. We don't speak placing ourselves at the center of the story that we're telling. We speak as conduits of grace with God at the center telling his story. And so this time Jonah goes. This time Jonah responds in obedience. And so we see in verse 3, so Jonah arose and he went to Nineveh according to the word, according to the directive, according to the commissioning of 
the Lord. Now, something we might again miss in this story is the distance and time it would have taken Jonah to get from where he was to where he needed to go. Jonah had gone down to Joppa from Jerusalem. He'd gone down to the port. He'd gone down into the belly of the ship. And then he had gone down into the water and down, down, down to what he thought would be his death. But in God's grace, God appointed this fish of rescue to come save Jonah. In that moment, Jonah began to rise again. And up and up and up he would go, arising more and more, up until he gets actually spit out of the mouth of this fish onto dry land. But wherever this took place, wherever Jonah resurfaced from the sea, it still would have been quite a journey to landlocked Nineveh. At the beginning of the series, we said Nineveh was kind of what is modern-day northern Iraq, kind of in the Mosul area of Iraq is where Jonah was going. And so he's at the edge on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea, somewhere probably in Israel. And so he has to trek from there to there. There's no plane from the coast inland. There's no Excel train to take Jonah from Jerusalem to Nineveh. It would have been a long journey for him. He would have taken several days to get there, maybe even a week or so to get to this place. So it would have given Jonah a whole lot of time, a whole lot of time to think, a whole lot of time to pray, a whole lot of time to reflect on all that had happened, a whole lot of time to prepare for what might come ahead, whatever that outcome might be. And so Jonah arrives at the edge of Nineveh. And verse 3 says that Nineveh was an exceedingly great city. Not great in quality, but great in quantity. There was full of pomp as he walked into, saw the edge of the city. It might be like you and I, if we lived our whole lives in a small village in West Africa, and we got on a boat and we arrived in a New York harbor. And all of a sudden we look at the cityscape of New York and we're just blown away at the cityscape. That's what Jonah sees as he arrives at the edge of this city. It would have been a breathtaking kind of moment. Then it would take Jonah three days, three days to be able to walk all over this city and proclaim his message. And so you can picture him arriving, overlooking this city and beginning to walk in it and through it, a stranger in a strange land with a strange message. Not sure exactly what will happen. So what does happen? Well, this leads to our next point, redemption. We see this in verses 4 through 10. In verse 4, we see that Jonah walks about a day's journey into this city. Maybe it was in the city center. And he begins to proclaim his message. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Now, I think there's more to what Jonah says than what we see right here. This is really a summary of his message. And the reason I say that is because in verse 5, it tells us how the people respond. What does it say? It says they believed. They believed, but who did they believe? They believed God, not Jonah. They believed God. How did they know that this message was from the living God and not from just some crazy person who walked into the city and started shouting stuff at them? Jonah would have had to tell them more. We see in verse 6 that the king of Nineveh, the ruler of this city, caused the people together to pray for mercy. How would he know that it was even a possibility that mercy might be there for them unless Jonah communicated that in some way? See, Jonah told them more than just of God's righteous wrath against sin and rebellion. And it's likely that how Jonah told them that was relating it to his own story. How he had just experienced that. Perhaps by the time he got to the middle of the city after he had walked by some people, that his story had already preceded him in getting there. They had heard about Jonah. 
They had heard about what had happened to him. See, in Luke chapter 11, verse 30, Jesus there tells us that Jonah himself is a sign to the people of Nineveh. Not just his message, but Jonah himself as a sign, this prophet, this follower of God who is back from the dead. See, Jonah had experienced relentless rescue from his relentless disobedience, and now he was here to share that message with these people, this message of repentance and faith with them. See, Jonah's message is a message of repentance. It's a call to a hostile, anti-God people to turn in faith to the God they've spurned, to the God they've stolen glory from. And we can learn something critical for ourselves. We can learn something critical for our church and our mission here from Jonah's preaching. Because we can initially look at this and think maybe two different things, that Jonah was kind of harsh in what he was saying, and that it seems like he maybe should have communicated more about God's love and less about God's wrath in this instance. But in this instance, what they needed to hear, what needed to be made clear to them was that God is perfect and holy, and they are not. They were anything but holy. Yes, they probably had some kind of faith. Many people during this time would have had some aspect of religious faith. They would have worshipped something, some God, but not the living God. It would have been false gods. False gods who were likely just projections of themselves. And so Jonah told them, there's a consequence for your sin. God is real and he is holy and he is altogether righteous. His ways are preeminent. His glory is paramount. And so there is real judgment, temporal and eternal judgment for rebellion against God. And the people of Nineveh are under righteous condemnation for their false worship, for their disdain of God. But it's not just the people of Nineveh. All of us are in that same place. See, it's tempting for a pastor, it's tempting for a a missionary, it's tempting for me, it's tempting for you to want to fit our words to what people want to hear. To twist and communicate our words in a way that won't be off-putting to people, but in the end, that is not helpful for anyone. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 3 through 4, the Apostle Paul says this to Timothy. He says, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. That was true for Nineveh. And it's true here and now in America, in our own country. There's just an accumulation of people, teachers, pastors, preachers, books, whatever it happens to be, that all they're seeking to do is communicate what you already want to hear. But sometimes what you need to hear is what you don't want to hear. And that's true here. That's true all over the world right now. Listen, if we are going to be faithful to the message that we are called to proclaim, if we're going to be faithful to Do that to see redemption actually take place, to see sinners actually rescued from their deserved death and condemnation, to be brought into the family of God, to reconcile to our holy God. We cannot not talk about the reality of judgment and the reality of hell. A very real place of eternal separation from the living God, a very real place. We're set where we are, if we're apart from Christ, if we don't know him, then we will bear on our own the full weight of the righteous wrath of God for our rebellion. We don't do this, though, to scare people. 
We don't do this in any way, shape, or form to manipulate anyone. We have to communicate this because this is reality. This is what's true. It's difficult to communicate someone that they need to be saved from something if they don't, we don't actually communicate what it is they need to be saved from. That there is real judgment and real condemnation and real consequences for our sin. And here's where it really gets to our heart and really presses on us as followers of Jesus. Brother or sister, if you are not convinced of this danger, this real danger, it's no wonder that you don't tell anyone about it. If there's not a sense of urgency in you as you look at people around you, your neighbors and your coworkers, as you look at this world and don't have an urgency for the fact that apart from Christ, people, billions of people will spend an eternity separated from the living God. It's no wonder. There's no sense of telling anybody. There's no urgency in that. And I say that to you, not as a Not as a condemnation or rebuke just of you. That's a rebuke to me as well because I can fall in the same place. I can look at my neighbors. I can pass people by on the streets in Fairfax and not be broken for them because I don't think about that reality. It doesn't hit me in the heart. 2 Corinthians chapter 7 verse 10 says, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. See, when people are not presented with the reality and the consequences of a life devoid of and apart from God, there is no hope of them having a godly grief because they don't understand who they've grieved. If they change anything, they just change their behavior, but that's worldly grief, and all it'll produce is death. See, Jonah preaches a message that includes a very real reality of God's righteous wrath and inherent in that is the gift of mercy and grace that there is still time to turn away from that. There is still an opportunity to turn away. And the people hear this message from Jonah and they believe God. The word believe here is the first word in the Hebrew sentence. The the Hebrew sentence structure is different than how we structure uh, sentences in English. So there's an emphasis on the word believe at the beginning of this sentence. It's a a message is proclaimed and the result is belief. It's God's means of bringing this message of hope, this message of repentance and faith. It comes through his people. It comes through Jonah. It comes through you to people who need to hear it. But part of belief, as we said last week, is repenting. It's turning away from sin and turning in faith to God. But there's a sense of immediacy in this. They don't go home to think about it. There's an immediate response because repentance isn't something to do later. It's something to do now. But in this moment of spiritual awakening, in this moment of conversion, there's an element that's both terrifying and comforting. Because in that moment, they recognize, like we talked about last week, they recognize the enormity of who God is, the holiness of who God is, and at the very same time, recognize how far they fall short of God's glory. So that's both terrifying, but at the same time, it's comforting because God extends mercy and grace to them. It reminds me of what we read about in Acts chapter 2 this week in the community Bible reading we're doing. When Peter preached the first sermon after Pentecost, it says the people were cut to the heart and they respond. They said, brothers, what must we do? What must we do? They recognized at that moment they had no hope. But what does Peter do? He gives them hope. He calls them to repentance and faith. Their belief in turning away from their sin led them to turn 
to God. They believed God. That's a statement of faith. They didn't just believe the words of Jonah. They believed in the source and the subject of those words, God himself. And so what do they do in response? They call for a fast. They put on sackcloth. In verse 6, we see the word of God reaches the king and he does the same thing and then he sits in ashes and he calls for a fast and repentance for everyone, even the animals. It's a sign of sorrow. It's a sign of repentance for them to do this. But all this is, this outward display, that's not the main focus. The outward display should be an outward display of an inward reality because the only thing that's going to save them is a genuine faith. A genuine faith in the living God. The genuine faith that displays their need for God's grace and that through that will manifest itself in radical transformation of heart and behavior. And so the king understands that they do not deserve mercy. They do not deserve grace for their rebellion, for their evil, for their wickedness, for their violence. But he appeals to God for mercy and grace. As one pastor says, we dare not approach God without repentance for sin, but we become morbid if we fail to reach out to his grace. We have to do both of these things together. And in verse 10, we see the result. God gives it to them in abundance. They deserved wrath and God gave them mercy. They deserved condemnation and God extended grace to them. This is a picture where God uses human repenting to bring about divine relenting. Repentance is important in this and God turns away. And there's a lot of turning going on in this text. We see the people of Nineveh turning from sin. We see them turning to God. We see God turning from his righteous wrath. And in a seeming instance, this pagan city was transformed through the preaching and proclamation of the word of God. And the good news for us is the same is possible here and now today. It's possible in our city, it's possible in our world, and it's possible in your life. See, we have the word of the Lord delivered to us here in this Bible that we have. It's why we preach it every week. It's why we proclaim it every week. We believe God's word is living and active. It doesn't just contain information for our head. It contains the ability and the means of transformation. It's the living word of God that tells us about the word of life, that tells us about Jesus, the person and work of Christ and what he has done for us. So have you received this word? Have you received this word that's given to you here? Have you recognized your own need for mercy and grace and salvation from condemnation? In John chapter 5, verse 24, Jesus says there, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. That was the reality for the people of Nineveh, and they believed. The most heinous people experienced mercy and grace. They experienced redemption. But how? How is that possible? After all of their evil, these vile, vicious God-haters, these insolent, oppressive, wicked people, how is this possible? It's possible because Jonah turned himself and he came and delivered a message that told them of the weight of their sin and their need for a savior because the people believed and turned away and because God turned away from his wrath but how 
How could God do that? This perfect, holy God who cannot allow sin to not be dealt with. How could he do this in this moment? How is this possible? Because the pinnacle of all history at that point would have looked forward to and from our vantage point looked back to some 700 years after Jonah would have walked into this city on the side of a hill outside of the city of Jerusalem in a place called the Skull. A place of death and darkness. A place where criminals and crooks, murderers and liars and thieves and swindlers were nailed to wooden beams and hoisted into the air to die an excruciating death for their wickedness. One man would go. He would go and he would die amongst, in a place where thousands of other people had died. One man would go and he would die. He would have his arms and his legs stretched out, his hands and his feet pierced through with long metal spikes, pinning him against the rough wood of a wooden cross. But not for his sin, not for his wickedness, not for his rebellion. He had none, but for Nineveh's wickedness, for Nineveh's sin, for Jonah's sin, for your sin. How is this possible for God to relent from this disaster and destruction that the people of Nineveh deserve? Because Jesus was unwilling, unwilling to turn away from bearing the wrath of God for sinners like them and for sinners like you and like me. Jesus went and he willingly stayed so that the holy and awesome and almighty God might relent of the destruction and the disaster that you deserve for your rebellion and your sin. See, in Luke chapter 11, we learn that Jonah was assigned to the people of Nineveh, but we also learn this. In verse 32 of chapter 11, it says, The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Something greater than Jonah is here, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Sojourn, do you know what this means? It means that redemption is possible for the most heinous of people. It means that a terror cell right now can experience redemption. It means that ISIS fighters can experience redemption. It means that human traffickers can experience redemption. It means that people that you think in your mind are the most heinous, evil people in the world who do the worst possible thing that you can possibly imagine can experience redemption. And what that also means for you is that redemption is possible for you as well. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you've done. God's grace is sufficient for you. So have you received it? Have you experienced it? So Jonah proclaimed God's word and they believed. Redemption had come to a wicked place through the mouth and ministry of a recommissioned missionary. And there are people all over the world right now that are just like the people of Nineveh. People all over this city right now that are just like the people of Nineveh that need someone like Jonah to come to them and share the good news of God's grace. Which leads to our next point, our last point, revival. What takes place in Nineveh is nothing short of revival. The whole city The whole city turns to God for mercy. 
We see these people who are in darkness come to light. People who had at one time had no care or concern of God are now suddenly consumed by the thought of him. When the word of God is proclaimed, there is always the possibility of revival. Revival is the idea of coming to life, being revived from death to life. In Acts 2, again, we see this. The word is preached and thousands of people come to know Christ. And after that, it says more and more were added day by day. Revival was taking place. Pastor Tim Keller, who's a pastor up in New York City, says that we know when revival is happening because three things take place. He says sleepy Christians are being woken up. Nominal Christians, those who claim to know Christ but don't actually know him, are actually coming to salvation. They're actually being saved. And then he says that hard-to-reach people, people who seem they have like such a hard heart towards God, turn and are converted and come to know Jesus. When we see those things start to happen, we know that revival is taking place. But revival is not something you can program. It's not something you can schedule. I always think it's interesting, I don't know where everybody's from, but in the, so- the southern part of the United States, the kind of Bible belt of the United States, um, maybe you've seen this, you've been in churches where they'll, they'll have a revival weekend. Like April 3rd through the 5th, we're having a revival. Like, do they schedule the Holy Spirit for that? Or, like, I don't, that doesn't make any sense to me. You can't schedule a revival it's not something that you can do. You can't manufacture revival. Sure, we can stir up emotions, but that's not genuine revival. Genuine revival is when the Holy Spirit pierces your heart in such a profound way that you are just overwhelmed with God's grace. That you've got leaders in churches going, I don't think I'm actually saved. I need to know Jesus. When that neighbor that you've been trying to just introduce yourself to finally wants to engage with you, and when you start to share Christ with them, the scales fall off their eyes, and the walls are broken down, and they fall to their knees in repentance and faith. That's revival. When it comes to the preaching of God's Word, and it comes to the power of the Holy Spirit, it happens, though, when God's people are faithful. When they're faithful to be who God has called them to be, the sent and sending. The people who go. This means revival on this scale is possible here and now because our God is alive and he longs to see people come to know him and he longs to use you and me to bring it about. See, the church, you, are God's plan A for bringing about revival to reaching your neighbors in the nations. You are God's plan for doing that. There's no other qualification than the fact that you know the living God for you to be able to go do that. And the beauty of the story of Jonah is that God uses jacked up people to bring about his global glory. You don't have to have a Bible degree. You don't have to be schooled in all kinds of theology. You don't have to have a perfect life to be able to do this. And we know that because we see over and over again in the scriptures and the pages of scripture and the history of the church How often God uses flawed messengers, flawed messengers who've experienced his grace to share the message of that grace. That has been said before, God uses crooked sticks to make straight lines. See, the restoration of Jonah led to the revival of Nineveh. And isn't that what God so often does? He uses broken people, broken people like you, broken people like me to bring healing to broken people. 
And I can stand up here today and say that. I can preach that. I can be excited about the hope of grace and mercy to you because I've experienced that. I'm a failure. I'm flawed. I'm beset with sin. But you know what? My God continues to lavish grace on me. He continues to pour out his love on me. He continues to allow me the privilege and joy to be a part of making much of him. So look at me. God can use your failure. God can use your trauma, whatever trauma you've experienced in your life. God can use your sin even to bring about grace to others, to use you as a conduit of that grace to others in need. See, God often uses us most poignantly after we've experienced brokenness, after we've experienced trial. Do you know why? Because the illusion is gone. We become kind of disillusioned in that moment. The illusion is wiped away because all we have is all we have, Jesus. And we say, look, I have no hope but him. He's my only hope. He's my source of peace. Do you know him? As one pastor says, the jewels of spiritual service are always quarried in the depths of spiritual experience. See, out of Jonah's inner death came life to Nineveh, a place of death and darkness. Jonah was redeemed so that he might bring redemption to others. The same is true for you. Because see, faith comes by hearing. Faith comes by hearing, but how will they hear if you don't go? How will they hear if you don't go to faraway lands and to the kitchen table at your neighbor's house? How will they hear if you don't go to distant shores and out to lunch with your coworker? How will they hear? What if someone has never heard of Jesus? What if they've never heard of the grace and mercy that God gives to them that he allows them to experience, even for your worst enemy? Are you broken over that? Does that tear you up inside to know that there are people right now all over the world, billions of people all over the world, millions of people right here in Northern Virginia that don't know that God extends grace to them through his son, Jesus Christ? Does that break you? The reality for me oftentimes is it doesn't. It doesn't. But that's why if I want to see revival take place out there I have to see revival take place in here first. It has to start with my own heart. Because see, true revival begins in the heart of one person. It begins in the heart of one person. God did a work in Jonah so that he might do a work through Jonah. God's heart is for the nations. God longs to see people come to know him. But in order for that to take place, in order for that revival to take place in Fairfax and all over the world, it starts in your heart that God might revive you. My boys, uh, they're six, almost seven, and three and a half. And one of the things they love to do is if we go into a parking garage, they jump out of the car and they yell echo. Um, maybe because I taught, taught, taught them how to do that. But they, they love to get out and they'll just scream as loud as they can, echo, echo. You know, they want to hear their voice echoing around the parking garage. And that's what an echo is, right? An echo takes place when sound bounces off of distant surfaces. But what happens when you're in a smaller space and sound bounces around? It's called reverberation. Because when reverberation takes place, the original sound and repeating sounds start to layer on top of each other in a way that it seems almost constant. So when the Word of God impacts your heart, 
when that word of God impacts your life and then you share it with one another in community. And then we as a community collectively share the word of God with people around us in our city and around the world. Reverberation takes place and then revival happens. We have to minister the word of God to one another first before we're ever going to see it take place anywhere else because it starts with you. It starts with one person. John Owen, who's one of my favorite theologians, my son Owen is named after him. He says this, the word can only come with power to our hearers when it has come with power to our own hearts. Church, we have no business going out and telling anybody about Jesus if we're not spending time with Jesus. Because we're not going to have anything to share with them. We have no hope because we're not rooting ourselves in Christ. Revival has to start with you. That was true for Jonah. Jonah needed to have that experience of suffering and trial in order for that message to take root in his own heart before he could ever go share it with anybody else. And then it's true for you and me as well. Sojourn, I long to see revival take place in your life. Long to see it take place in our church. Long to see it take place in Fairfax in Northern Virginia. Long to see it take place in our world. And it will take place, and we ha- if it's going to take place, we have to open up our mouths. We have to open up our lives to the lost and the, the least and the lonely. One pastor says the gospel is emphatically geographical. It's emphatically geographical. What that means is the gospel has feet to it. The gospel's planted somewhere. It takes root somewhere. Jonah didn't st- stand on the edge of the city and preach to Nineveh from a distance. He walked into the city, and he bumped into the people. He smelled the smells. He saw the sights, the homes, the gardens, the city buildings. He ate the food. He heard them talking, and he shared his message. If we're going to see redemption and revival take place here and now, we have to do the same. We have to enter in. We have to be present with where we are and listen to where God might be sending us to go. We planted this church here four and a half years ago in this city, in this place to reach these people and from here to send us out to the ends of the earth that more and more people might know the name of Jesus. That's why we're here. That's why we started here because you know what? Nineveh is the nations and Nineveh is your neighbor. But only when the sign of Jonah is seen in the church will the power of God be seen in the world. So brothers and sisters, we have to understand God cares about his global glory. And he has called you, like he called Jonah, to help spread it. We already know the end of the story. We know that God, it's a sure thing that God is going to save people from every tribe, every language, every nation. We know that already. So as one pastor says, that gives us the fuel for death-defying mission. We can go in confidence knowing that there are people all over the world, in cities all over the world, in the outskirts all over the world, in Fairfax, at George Mason University, there are unreached people groups here all over the world, that if we share the message of Christ for them, that God might save them. So what are we waiting for? What are we holding back from? God is in the business of redeeming the seemingly unredeemable. We can look at Nineveh and see that. We can look at our own lives and see that. And then we can lift up our eyes and look at the people around us, look at the world around us, and behold the possibilities. Sojourn, shake off the dust of disenchantment. It is time for an awakening. 
It's time for an awakening. Behold, now is the time of salvation, the day of salvation. Behold, now is a favorable time. So would you arise and would you go to wherever God's calling you? Maybe it means getting on a plane and going overseas. Maybe it means just tomorrow morning getting up and going to work, going to class, and looking at the people around you with different eyes, eyes of possibility that God might save them if they would but hear and but turn from their sin. We're going to come to the table this morning. And my hope is, is that as we come, that your heart, your mind would be so moved by the preaching of God's word, by the reality of God's grace, that you would explode in joy and worship as you eat the bread and drink the cup this morning. That you would remember that God is in the business of redeeming the seemingly unredeemable. That he made a way for you, that he made a way for me. Lost and alone in this world, strangers with no hope, that he brought you near as Christ's body was broken for you, as Christ's blood was shed for you. And so I hope that as you eat and drink this morning, that it will prompt a revival in your own heart and that it will lead to revival in this church that will spill out to be a revival in these streets. God is at work among us, friends. He is at work among us so that he might work through us. So be attentive to the Spirit this morning. Even in this meal, even as we sing, be attentive to the Spirit this morning and arise and go to wherever and whoever God is calling you to. So let's come to this table this morning. Let's come repentant and rejoicing this morning that God's grace is efficient and effective in your life and my life. And if you're not a follower of Christ, we would just ask you not to come forward this morning because this meal is a testimony that our only hope is in Jesus. And so if you haven't yet placed your hope, you haven't placed your faith in Jesus, then we want to say, hey, just hang out in your seat. Don't come eat the bread. Don't come drink the cup. Just take Jesus this morning. He extends grace to you. Turn away from your sin and turn to him that you might experience redemption. If you have questions about what that means, please come talk to me or any of our other leaders or whoever you're around this morning. We'd love to tell you more about what that looks like. Those of you that will come forward, you can come to the front or head to the back. Take a small piece of bread and a cup to drink. And what Jesus has done for you will be spoken over you this morning. Let's pray. Father, we just pray this morning very simply, let revival come. God, would you bring revival to our hearts? Would you bring revival to this church? Would you bring revival to this city? Would you bring revival to this country? Would you bring revival to this world? That your global glory will spread to the ends of the earth. God, we pray that our neighbors and the nations would know the hope and mercy and grace that comes to them in and through Jesus. Lord, help us to be faithful to go, to arise and go to trust you with the outcome, but to be faithful to the means to that outcome, to be faithful messengers of the good news that we've received. Lord, we long to see others receive that as well. We love you, and we pray all this in Christ our King's name. Amen.